Uh, you can open up your copy of the scriptures to the book of Deuteronomy. We're in Deuteronomy 29. There's 34 chapters in Deuteronomy. We're going to do a, about a chapter a week uh, the next few weeks and as we wrap up this book of Deuteronomy. Uh, but I uh, wanted to, to say before we turn to the text, just um, a reminder to you, if you uh, would like to ever make contributions to the general fund of our church, there's multiple ways to do that. We don't pass around offering plates any longer, um, but uh, there's boxes back at the back of the auditorium here. Uh, if you'd like to bring a check or, or anything like that, uh, uh, drop those in those boxes. You can also give digitally. You can send a mail-in, uh, bill pay, things like that. But I, we are so thankful for your generosity as a church family. Uh, we are uh, far ahead of our budget uh, right now as we come to the near end of our fiscal year. And we're, we're humbled by that as a church family that, that you would give of the resources that God has entrusted to you to give to a common pool that we can use to send missionaries, that we can use to care for our, the leaders here, that we can use to extend ministries here. It is actually fun to get to think about what new things we can do uh, because of your generosity. So thank you for that uh, and, and appreciate it as we have been given so much that we would give back a portion of what God has given to us. Uh, I'm going to give you a small little test in a second, uh, but I want to explain what this test is about or why I'm giving it and how it even connects with today's te uh, text. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I took my son to the eye doctor uh, to spectacle shop here in town to see Dr. Rich. He's about to start kindergarten in a few months, and we have to get his eyes tested and a few basic things tested for him. And uh, one of the things that we discovered is that our, our little Charlie is colorblind. Uh, we did not realize this until we took him to the eye doctor and he uh, was given these little tests. I want to tell you how the tests are given. You may already know this, and then I want to show you a test on the screen to see. Maybe you'll learn that you're colorblind today as well. Um, but uh, how the test is given, I, I think this is how all eye doctors do this nowadays, is uh, the eye doctor tested a few other things. Then he had this little booklet that had just a couple printed pages in it. And inside of that booklet, there was several circles. Uh, and within those larger circles, there was smaller circles. They were made up of different colored smaller circles. And uh, they're all similar intent, uh, the, the hue of them, but there's slight differences and nuances. Uh, and he would show him, he would hold out and point to one of the sets of circles and say something like, do you see anything inside of this circle? And I'd be looking at it, and I would, because I could see from my angle, I could see what he was pointing to. I could clear as day see, like, a number 7 in the middle of it, or a 21 or something. Like, I could obviously see it. He would, and again, I was not expecting this at all, but he would show this to my son and say, what do you see inside this circle? And he would just look at it confused, like, I don't, and he would say, I don't see anything. And he said, like, you don't see a, a shape, you don't see a number, anything like that. And he would just shrug his shoulders and say, no, I, I don't. And then he would show him another one, and I would see, like, an eight or something like that. Again, my son would see nothing in the middle of it. And my mind is just very confused, like, what is going on? Uh, but he showed him several. And so I want, I think this will work even on our projectors, but I wanted to put one, an example of one of these eye tests uh, up here. I'm guessing most, because most of us actually can see all the distinctions between different colors, um, but like Pastor Larry, for example, is colorblind. He's not here this morning, but if he was to look at this, he would not see what most of us see when we look at that. And there may be some of you in the room who don't see what's in the middle of this. You just see a bunch of circles uh, that are the same. But when I count to three, I want us to say, everybody who can see it, say what you see, okay? One, two, three. A question mark. 
right? Okay, so most of us see that. Uh, some of you may have just learned that you are colorblind, so congratulations if that is you. Uh, you can go to an eye doctor and learn more about that. Um, but uh, I, I mention all of this and even give you this little test somewhat for fun, but to uh, point us to today's text um, because you're going to see language even as I read this text, this chapter of scripture in a moment, language about seeing uh, and Moses pointing God's people to look back at something, to look back at an event and he knows though, uh, and this is still true of some of us today, many of us, we're actually born this way, is that there is a spiritual blindness that we possess even when we look at the very saving works of God, we're looking at objective things. Like those colors, that question mark is there. Like some people don't see it, but it's there. And Moses is going to, to point them back to the saving work of God, the things he's done to provide rescue and salvation. And he knows some of them are not going to see what's all there. They're just going to shrug. Like my son, they're, they're, even though the facts are amazing and wonderful, there's just going to be a spiritual shrug and they're going to be unmoved. They're going to be unchanged by what they see and what they're pointed to. But the alternative and what Moses was hoping to see and what I would hope to see at the end of this morning is that by God's grace, all of us would see what's actually there as we look at the saving work of God. That we wouldn't just shrug they wouldn't say, I don't see the big deal. I don't see anything uh, wonderful about that. But that we would see what is truly there. So we're coming to Deuteronomy chapter 29. We're going to read this whole text. It is 29 verses. Uh, if you feel bad about listening to 29 verses, you should have been here last Sunday. Because we did 68 verses. And all the little kids that just got dismissed were in here with us. And we did fine. Uh, so we're going to read less than half of what we did uh, last week. Um, but I wanted to, to prep you for what this is. If you haven't been with us especially, just real briefly catch you up to speed before we uh, take off and read Deuteronomy 29. The book of Deuteronomy we've seen again and again the last numerous months is like an ancient treaty. Uh, it's like a covenant document between God and his people as they're about to finally go into the promised land. They're, they're, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they're about to go into the land of Canaan at long last. And Moses uh, has given them these, this long speech or a set of speeches that are recorded for us here in the book of Deuteronomy. We saw months ago, he started by recounting their history, how God had saved them, all the wonders and things he had done. Then we saw for most of Deuteronomy, Moses has been telling them the rules. He's, he's been giving them the law again. Like, this is how God expects us to live as we go into this land. Then most recently, right before what we read, or about to read today, most recently as part of this treaty structure is through Moses, God has now told them the blessings that will come if they actually obey. And he has told them extensively, that's why chapter 28 was so long, told them extensively the curses that will come if they disobey. Uh, so we've had the backstory, the laws, and then the blessings and curses. And now as we come to chapter 29, Moses is concerned, and you're going to see his heart just bleed out on the pages here. Uh, Moses is concerned uh, that these people, these fellow Israelites who are about to go into the land, that he's about to die and leave, uh, these Israelites, he is concerned that they're not going to keep this law. He, he is very concerned that they are just going to abandon the commands that God's given to them. That they're going to even look back at the saving works of God and just shrug 
and just continue on doing what they want to do without any regard for the law, without any regard for the curse that God has said would come upon them. So just like Dr. Rich held out the, that book a couple times to show my son, like, do you see this? Like, uh, Moses is going, even though he's reminded them already many times about the saving work of God, we're going to see him do it again. It's like him holding out at the start of today's text, holding out that picture again. Say, remember what God's done to save us. And he wants them to see the depths of what's really there, what God has really done, so that they take God's law seriously. He, and he's going to warn them, you'll see, of the dangers if they don't. That he, he's going to warn them to not presume upon God's kindness and to just press on in their disobedience. So follow along with me at long last, Deuteronomy chapter 29. I'm going to read verses 1 to 29. So after a long speech by Moses, the narrator picks back up here in verse 1, and then we're going to hear some more words of Moses. So chapter 29 begins like this. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, Keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you. And as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, it is not with you alone that I'm making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed, and you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, 
but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, The whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout and overthrow, like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, Is it because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord? the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This is the word of the Lord. I want to summarize this text uh, with this statement and then walk back through the text and show you what I mean. Uh, But the summary of, of this text and today's message would be this is that I I want you, I want us, to see God's saving work as a prod toward obedience, not as an excuse for disobedience. So I'll say that again. To see God's saving work as a prod toward obedience, not as an excuse for disobedience. And I want to show you what I mean. The start of this chapter, um, Moses is telling the Israelites to look again. Just like I mentioned how that eye doctor told my son, look again at this thing. Moses is telling them these first several verses here, look again at what God's done for us. Like, I want to show it to you again. I've told you a hundred times, a million times, but I'm going to show you again what God has done to save us, what he's done to rescue us. So that's how he starts. Uh, in verses 2 and 3, for example, he uses that language of what they have seen, right? He says, you have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. This would have been stuff from 40 years prior, uh, back when the exodus happened. A lot of these people hearing this when Moses was actually speaking actually wouldn't have been there to see it with their own eyes. The older men and women who would have been hearing this would have. They would have been teenagers, kids, maybe toddlers being carried across the the bed of the Red Sea. Uh, They they would have seen those things, but uh, by extension, those who've now come underneath them and generationally, they've seen it with the, the eyes of storytelling, right? That their parents, their grandparents have told them about these things, what God did before the eyes of Israel to Pharaoh and to his servants and to all the land. He references in verse 3 the things they saw of great trials and signs and great wonders. That's referring to the plagues that God had brought as part of delivering them. There were all these plagues that God had brought upon Pharaoh and upon the land of Egypt. 
as part of rescuing his people. And the last one was the Passover, the, the plague of the death of the firstborn, where God had brought death upon the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but in doing so had spared the people of Israel and the firstborns in those households. And then he drove them toward the Red Sea and parted the Red Sea and, and let them escape God had done all these great trials and wonders to rescue them from the hand of Pharaoh, right? To rescue them from fellow human beings and the oppression that they had felt there. So Moses is pointing them back to that. Like, remember what we've seen. Remember what we've experienced as a people. Look at it again, he's saying. Then he continues by not just referencing 40 years ago, as if that's the only evidence they have, but he starts in verse 5 for a few verses. He talks about how God has continued to save them even these last 40 years he says i've led you 40 years in the wilderness right and he talks about how their clothes haven't worn out how they've had food to eat and drink how their their sandals haven't worn off their feet right so god's continued to provide for them and he wants them to remember that say look at this like what god's he's given us food miraculously out in the wilderness every day uh he's continued to save us he's continued to provide for us and he references in verse 7 and 8 he references even more recently for these people victories that God had given them over these kings of kings named Sihon and Og God's given them victories even recently these people would have seen that they would have witnessed he's saying God has saved us he's continuing to miraculously show his saving work for us and the effect that that should have had on them if they would actually see it for what it is, you can connect and you can see in verse 9, right? That, the first word of verse 9. He, he's been telling them, you've seen this, you've seen that, you've seen all these great things God's done to save us. Verse 9 then he says, therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, right? That's what the effect of seeing these things and remembering them should have had was that they're blown away by how God has saved them, the mercy and kindness that God has shown them, and that they then want to and actually do follow what God tells them to do, that they live the way that God has called them to live. That is what should have happened. That is what Moses wants to happen, is that they'll actually see the kindness of God and the mercy of God and the salvation he's given, and that they'll actually change, they'll actually obey, they'll actually follow this law. He wants them to know that God freed us from Egypt to follow a new master, right? Not to just follow our own hearts, not just to follow our own inclinations, and now we have freedom to do whatever we want and live however we want and worship whatever God we want. But he freed them. He wants them to know God freed us. God miraculously saved us so that we would follow him, like that we would do what he calls us to do. But Moses knows that has yet to actually click. They're not actually seeing this. They're, they're failing that vision test. All right? And you can know that based on verse 4. If you look at verse 4, even though he's saying, look, like we have seen these things. I'm reminding you again today of these things. Verse 4 he says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear so he tells them literally you've seen these things happen but then metaphorically says but you haven't really seen them like you haven't really seen everything there is to see uh, as you review these events you haven't seen rightly 
right? When they look back at those events of the Exodus, when they look back at those 40 years as God's continued to provide for them and, and bring salvation to them ongoingly, they're not looking at it and submitting, responding with submission. They're looking at those things and responding with a shrug, right? Just like my son looked at those circles, and I don't see anything significant about these bunch of circles. The, Egypt, the, the Israelites, Moses knows, even as they look back at these amazing works of salvation, these miraculous things that God did to, to rescue them, he knows that they don't see any significance to it, that they're responding with shrugs instead of submission. And Moses is concerned not just in the present moment as he gives this speech to them. He's concerned for them, but he's also even more concerned for the future because he knows he's about to die. He knows they're about to go into this promised land where they're going to be surrounded by false gods, where they're going to be surrounded by even increased temptations to disregard God. And he knows if they continue to look at those saving works of God with shrugs instead of submission, he knows it's going to get worse. Like he knows that it's not just going to resolve itself. He knows they're going to go deeper into rebellion. And he knows if they continue to go deeper into rebellion, that destruction will come. And he's wanting to burst any illusion that they have in their mind that we can continue to rebel and God will just continue to to forbear. He'll continue to, to show mercy to us. Moses wants to destroy that logic and he warns them very firmly, starting in verse 16. Verses 10 to 15, the little paragraph before, I'll just briefly mention, in 10 to 15, he's reminding them as they enter into this covenant, or as they renew this covenant with God here, that it's a communal covenant, that that it involves men, women, children, the elders, the officers, the uh, sojourners, all the sojourners who are among them, no matter what their role, if they're part of Israel, they're entering into this covenant. It's a collective agreement they're making and that God is making with them. And it's an even generational covenant, right? When he says in verse 15, we're not, this covenant isn't just for those standing here with us today, but whoever's not here with us today, that's not just talking about like, oh, there's a couple people out sick or something like that. It's talking about the descendants to come, the, the sons and daughters and foreigners, whoever comes into the nation of Israel. This covenant involves all of them as well. So he, he reminds them of that. But then in 16 and following, he gives them this firm warning, right? This, this firm warning. He, and he returns to this theme of what they have seen, right? If you look at verse 17, in 16 he's told them, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of nations, like when God rescued us. But then 17, he says, you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold that were among them. So he's saying, not just you've seen the miraculous rescue of God, but you've also seen now in these foreign nations, you've seen detestable things. You've seen these false gods that human beings are bowing down to, that they're orienting their lives around. You've seen that too now. Uh, And he knows they're going to be tempted to serve those gods, to either abandon the one true God and serve them or to just add these gods into the mix, to just kind of to spread out their worship more thin. You see that in verse 18, right? He says, Where, lest there be among you a man, a woman, a clan, a tribe, whose heart's turning away today from the Lord our God, to do what? To go and serve the gods of those nations, 
So those detestable gods they've seen being worshipped, he knows that there's this thing happening already in Israel and that will intensify as they get in closer proximity to these people, that there's going to be a temptation to serve those gods, to go after them, to run after them, to start to, to orient their lives around those gods. And that's why in verse 18, twice, he uses that command, beware. He starts verse 18 that way. He says it again before the verse is over, beware beware. He knows that temptation may come to individuals, right? To the, he says, beware there lest, be, lest there be among you a man or a woman, like singular. He knows that temptation to serve other gods may come to bigger groups, right? Because there could be a clan or a tribe whose heart's turning away from the Lord to go after these other gods. And this is the nature then of what the temptation is. You see at the end of verse 18 and going into verse 19, he says, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And he says that root is a person. In verse 19, he describes that person to beware of. He says, one who when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, hear this language given that God, Moses has just talked about blessings and curses that come from God. He says, beware of the person who though he's heard the words of this covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. What Moses is imagining is that what is going to happen in real time with individuals and with bigger groups in Israel is not that they're going to not know the law. It's not that they're not going to know the curses that God said will come for disobedience to the law. It's that they're going to be tempted to believe God will not actually bring those curses upon us. Right? That, that they, are, they think they can just bless themselves and just declare, I'll be fine. Like even though they know they're going to walk in rebelliousness of heart, right? That's what he says, is though I walk in the rebelliousness of my heart. But they think even when they do that, when they defy God, when they knowingly break the commands of God and, and disregard the law of God, they convince themselves, this is the temptation, they convince themselves, I'm good. God will not judge me. God will not judge us. He's shown us all this mercy. Yeah, Moses, like he's shown us mercy. Like he, he's been kind to us. He's rescued us. He's done all these wonderful things for us. He's not going to judge us. He's, this is just kind of a, a shtick or a gimmick of God to, to try to get us to do But God won't do that. God, God won't actually judge us. As I read that verse over and over again, this week, I could not help but think of the very first temptation of human beings. Right? These people here are saying, oh, we'll be fine even though we disobey. Go back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, right? God had told our first forefathers and foremother, Adam and Eve, told, told them to not eat of a particular tree. And he said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When Satan comes, when the serpent comes to tempt them, how does he do it? He says explicitly to them, Genesis 3, 4, you will not surely die. Right? First temptation to human beings. God's given a law. He has said what the consequence would be. He's not going to do that. 
He, he won't punish you. Like, look at this good garden he's given you. Look at this wonderful things he's given to you. He won't actually do that. Like, don't, don't believe that. Like, that, that he's blowing smoke to you, the serpent would say. And Moses, in this text, to his fellow Israelites, want them to know as clear as he can, God will and God does judge rebellion. He, he doesn't just hold out these threats of curse and judgment just to do it. Just as like some angle to try to get people to do what he wants. Like he, he is not bluffing. Like this is not a poker game that you play. I think God's bluffing about these curses that he said are going to come down. Moses, look at verse 20 and 21. And Moses could not be more clear that if there's a person who continues to say, I know the law, I know what God says he'll do, I don't believe it, and I'm going to keep just doing what I want. Moses, he, this, is what, this is what he says to them, verse 20. He says, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. If they think he's blowing smoke, like metaphorically, like this is saying, no, he will blow smoke. Like the smoke of his wrath will come against them. Right? He says that the curses written in this book will settle upon that man. The Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord will single him out from all the tribes for calamity in accordance with the curses that are written in this book of the law. Moses is wanting them to know, God will do this. Like he may have been slow to anger, but he is not infinitely slow to anger. Right? Like he, he may delay punishment, but he does not delay it forever. He, he wants them to know that, that judgment does come. But Satan baits the hook the same way with the same bait for us today that he did in the Garden of Eden that he was doing for these people as they got ready to cross into the promised land. He baits the hook the same way and dangles it in front of us. We have seen with our eyes, we have seen a greater salvation even than they had seen, right? They saw a sea parted, right? We have seen a dead man raised from the dead never to die again. Right? They saw plagues come upon a nation that deserved it. We have seen God's wrath come down on a man who didn't deserve it, who died as a substitute for us on the cross. We have seen at the cross of Jesus greater rescue than what they had seen. We can be shown something that is infinitely more impressive than what they could be shown. And Satan, in, the, in his twisted mind, can even point us to that very event of the cross, right? And he can use it in our minds and hearts to twist and convince us that it is okay to keep sinning, to almost have more motivation to keep sinning because of what happened at the cross. That, that we can look at that event, that saving work of God at the cross, and he can twist it to convince us that sin is okay because of that event, that we can th feel more willing to indulge in sin, right? He, he tempts us to look at the cross and see it as an excuse for sinning rather than as a prod away from sin, right? And the way that he does this, and see if you have ever had Satan whisper things like this to you or if you've ever convinced yourself of things like this. When we're tempted to sin, or whatever fill-in-the-blank sin, we're tempted toward a certain sin, and we know the story of the cross. 
right? We know that Christ suffered for our sins, past, present, future. We know that God's judgment has already come down upon him there at the cross. Are you never tempted, I know I am, to think, my sin's already been dealt with. Here's this temptation in front of me. Even that sin will be dealt with at the cross. I'm okay to do this. Like God's already dealt with it. Jesus already suffered for it. So why not indulge a little bit more or a little bit longer? It's already been dealt with. And we can look at the cross, the very, the very place that we look for salvation, the, the ultimate saving work of God. We can even look there and find reason to sin. Right? And that, that is so twisted, but it has been around since the beginning of time that we, look, we are tempted to look at the goodness and the kindness of God, the mercy of God, and to just presume upon it. And to think, who cares? I can just enjoy it a bit more, a bit longer. So we continue in gossip, we continue in greed, we continue in lying. We started a ball of lying and we continue it. Christ died for that. We continue in our laziness. We continue in our apathy. We continue in our lack of forgiving. We continue in our lust. We continue in our addictions. We continue in all these things, pursuing these things we know are wrong. We know are sinful. But Satan twists the cross into an excuse for sin in our life, a justification for sin in our life. And I would understand the walking in rebellion amongst the world, amongst people who don't know the cross, who don't know the, the kindness of God that has been shown in the cross. I expect that in the world, is that they walk in the rebelliousness of their heart and they think they're fine. They think, I'm safe. Like if there's a God, he, he'll, he won't mind this. This is how I am. This is how I want to live. He'll, he'll, he'll be okay with that. But that is not an okay disposition for the people of God, the people who really know Christ. We cannot look at sin and think it is okay to just continue to indulge in it. And I, I, this month, the month of June in particular, the last several years has been heartbreaking for me in particular because of what has become in our culture where we call it pride month i expect that amongst the world like i i expect people to to celebrate what god has forbidden to indulge in and think this is a, a pleasant thing but what grieves my heart is when believers when people who know the word of god we know what he commands about sexuality. We know what he commands about gender. We know what he commands about marriage. We know what he commands about all these things. We cannot look back at the cross, look back at the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the grace of God, and think, well, I look at that, and I, I think he's fine with this. Like, and I even am willing to celebrate this and to flaunt this. That is grievous. That is the type of sin that Moses is talking about here, where we know the law of God. We know how he commands us to live, but we willingly reject it, knowingly reject it, and think God is fine with it. Or maybe even that God delights in giving me freedom. But at the cross, when we look at the cross, we must never see it as an excuse to sin, as a justification for sin. When we look at the cross, there's things that were happening there at the cross that we often miss. 
that we often forget about, that we, even as we look at it and contemplate it, like there was a question mark in that circle that we could could miss. When we look at the cross and what was taking place there, there's things that are actually there, that were actually happening and being shown at the cross that we could easily, easily miss. And I want to remind you of a couple of those things because typically when we think of the cross, we think of it almost only as a means of gaining forgiveness of sin, right? Which it is. You will hear me, as long as I have breath, you'll hear every pastor who's ever in this pulpit preach about the cross as the place that we can find forgiveness of our sins, that we receive forgiveness of our sins because Christ was dying in our place. He took our sin upon himself so that we might be forgiven of that sin. But there is more happening at the cross than just that. More than just the extension of forgiveness, there are many other things being shown at the cross, right? At the cross of Jesus, do we not also, should we not also see these things? That at the cross, when we look there, we see the vileness of sin, right? We see the ugliness of it, the detest, to use today's text language, the detestable nature of sin, We see at the cross God's hatred for sin, that he can't tolerate, that he he can't just wink at it and look past it. We see that he punished it, that he, he hates it. At the cross we see Christ not just dying, but we see even in his death, we see Christ freeing us, right, from the rule of Satan, from the domain of Satan. We, we see him freeing us, even in his death, from the power of sin, not just from the penalty of sin. At the cross, we see Christ freeing us to follow a new master, right? He, in the New Testament, we see that at the cross, Paul uses this language, we, who are the people of God, were bought with a price, We weren't just freed to become our own master. We weren't just freed at the cross to just live how we want. We were bought by Jesus and we belong to a new master. We see that at the cross. At the cross we see also our sinful self, my sinful self, your sinful self, being put to death with Christ. It's not just Christ dying there at the cross, but sinful me and sinful you dying there with him. Those, we see all of those things at the cross. And when we see that, when we see all of those layers and elements that are there at the cross, when we, see, we then see it not just as a means for the reception of forgiveness, but we see the cross as a call to forsake sin, right? To give it up, to run away from it, to, to flee from it, not to eat it some more, to not run after it a bit harder. We see at the cross a call to run away from sin. And so long as we miss those other dimensions of the cross and just think about it as a means of forgiveness, if that's all we think about the cross as, Satan doesn't mind us looking there, right? If he can convince us all the cross is about is just forgiveness, then he can convince us that sinning is okay, that that we can indulge more, you'll just receive more and more forgiveness, more and more grace. Christ has already died for those things. But it is when we start to see those added dimensions of the cross that Satan will try everything he can to keep us from looking there. He'll try to turn us away to other places and other things. We persist in this disobedience, this this walking in rebellion against God. Moses anticipates, and he would want us to hear today, and I want us to hear today, 
even from this text, if we persist in that rebellion, if we continue diving deeper into sin and believing that twisted logic that God's mercy justifies my sin, there is going to be tragic consequences that come. And Moses, he, he gets into this starting in verse 22 down to the end of today's text. Moses is anticipating a future scene, a future situation. Uh, he calls it in the next generation, but we know it's several generations, many generations after. But Moses wants them to know that God is going to judge them as individuals and as a nation. That there are consequences that come for unrepentant sin against God, right? In verses 20 and 21, he's talking about that individual person, right? He's saying if that individual continues in this pattern of sin, judgment will come. The anger of God will come against that man, right? If you keep reading on in the Old Testament, you see clear examples of this. There's a guy named Achan you can read about in Joshua 7 where he is, this literally comes true in his life, where he sins in a particular way. I don't have time to get into the details, but God calls him out supernaturally. God singles him out and brings judgment and death even upon him. This happens, this type of thing of, of God singling out and bringing judgment for unrepentant sin, even amongst the people of God, even happens in the New Testament. If some of you have heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, these were brother and sister who had heard about the cross. They had heard about God's rescue, but they're unrepentantly deceiving and lying. And God calls them to account for it and even puts them to death for their sin. Like God was showing him those examples and many others that he does delay judgment at times, but he does not refuse judgment. Like he doesn't delay forever. He is not passive or blind when we continue in unrepentant sin. There is a day appointed for judgment for all of us. And if we are not united with Christ, judgment will come against us. Hell will be our destination. Destruction will come for us. God, God will not spare us if we are not united with Christ. And Moses wants them to see that their sin if they continue indulging, it's not just even that individual person that destruction is going to come to. He wants them to see as he goes on in the latter parts of today's text that the whole nation is going to be affected, that the whole community is going to be affected by that sin. It's not just going to stay one person, right? He wants them to know that sin, as it's indulging, inevitably affects the community of people around us. Unavoidably, it affects the people around us. I think this, the starkest, clear example that we can probably think of right now of this is what's happening with the sin of Pastor John Lowe, right? From New Life Church that we've all heard about. We addressed a little bit even last week. Where not only has he grievous, grievously, painfully affected the survivor of his abuse, but now his sin that he indulged in and that he continued to snowball, and I don't know his mind and heart, but maybe justified as he looked at the cross and thought, I'm forgiven of this. As he persists in that, now think of how the pain and the, the, the difficulty has increased and multiplied and expanded, right? Now his, his church is, is reeling. People are hurting. His family is hurting. 
Our whole town has been in different ways in turmoil the last week. There are pe- hundreds of thousands of people around the world who've heard that story now and have, are more tempted to disbelieve Christ, more tempted to walk away from the church. There is just a, a train wreck of effect of his, what he thought was private sin, has an effect that has, has come upon so many. But it is not just those a tip of the iceberg example. That's probably the clearest, most extreme example. But the truth is, my sin and your sin, when we indulge in it, we have effects on our community. We have effects on the people around us, in our family, in our church, in our town, in our world. Our sin affects other people, right? Consider just a couple ways that when we indulge in sin, when we continue to justify it and spiral down into it, ways that our sin could affect others. One way that you see this happen, especially in church context, is that we indulge in sin ourselves. I would say this way, accountability wanes. And when we are justifying sin in our own life, and we're hiding it, and we're concealing it, and we're just indulging in it more, how less likely are we to confront the sin of other brothers and sisters? Right? Because we know the secrecy of what we're doing. And so when we indulge in sin ourselves, we're less likely to confront others, to challenge them, to call them to repentance because we're not even doing it ourselves. So accountability wanes. Example setting shrivels, right? Like when we sin, we may think, well, this isn't really affecting anybody. Like this isn't directly harming someone by what I'm doing here or how I'm indulging in this thing. But at minimum, what is happening as you indulge in sin is you are withholding an example of Christian living for others to see, right? Even if you think I'm not negatively directly impacting this person, you are impacting them by not providing them with the example that you should. They have nothing to look to to follow because you are living in sin, because we are living in sin. Another thing that happens when we just indulge in sin is that our hypocrisy hardens people, right? When, when people see, you say you believe this, and even the Bible you say you believe calls you to live this way, yet you just totally disregard that and live how you want, Why should I believe in this God? Why should I follow this book? Why should I trust in this Savior that you say you trust in when you don't evidently trust Him at all in how you live your life? And when we live in disobedience, we harden people even further against Christ, even further against His good news. There's all sorts of ways that our sinful indulgence affects the people around us. It happened in Israel, and Moses is warning them about it, but it still happens today. Our sin affects others. So how is this blindness reversed? I want to end by sharing this. How is this blindness reversed? If somebody truly, and maybe this is you, if somebody looks at the cross of Jesus, and all they can see, and their only response is just a shrug. Like, I really don't see the big deal. I don't, I don't see it as a, a reason to run away from sin. I don't see it at all like that. Like, I don't really care about the cross. I, I don't see it. I'm blind to its significance. What can we do? I, I want to point you back to verse 4. Moses is saying this negatively. He says, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Moses knew, 
and we see this confirmed through the rest of scriptures, that if someone is going to have eyes to see, it will be because God has given them the eyes to see. Right? It's not just that they've like, worked up the ability, that they've somehow like, practiced enough and looked at that thing enough to where, like, you remember those magic eye things that people used to, like, you can see the 3D things? Sometimes, like, if you looked hard enough and, like, people could tell you, like, okay, like, hold it far enough from your face and kind of cross your eyes. And if you practice enough, you could eventually see it. This is not like that. Like, if somebody is going to really see the cross how they're supposed to and see all the dimensions of it, that would actually not only show them the source of forgiveness, but call them to also forsake sin. If that ability is going to come to that person, it is because God gives it to them. And if you have that ability, it's because God has given it to you. And so what that should lead us to, if we know people in our life who just shrug at the cross of Christ, or maybe even who look at it as an excuse to just indulge sin further, is we should pray to God to give them eyes to see. Right? Pray that the Lord would intervene, that he would open their eyes, their spiritual eyes, to see. We, but we keep showing them the picture. Right? Like we keep showing them the picture. We keep pointing them again and again to the cross and say, you need to see this. I know you don't see it now, but you need to see this and you need to see it rightly. And I'm going to keep showing it to you and I'm going to keep praying that God will give you ability to see it. I don't know if you guys have seen those videos that are on social media sometimes now, but where people have developed these glasses that can actually help people who are colorblind see color. Have some of you seen these videos? Like where those people are, are given those glasses by their wife or their kids or something and they put those glasses on and they just like start crying and weeping because they can see color now. Sometimes I think we think that spiritual sight is like that. Like I can somehow get something. Like I can give this person as a gift the ability to finally see, to finally be able to see the depths of the cross. But you cannot buy a gift. There are no glasses for you to give because what has, where the change has to happen isn't outside the person, it is inside them. And you cannot touch that, but God can. And so what our call to do to people who don't see the cross is keep showing the picture of the cross and keep praying that God would help them to see it. That he would give them the ability, the spiritual ability to see it. But what are you to do if it's you who can't see it? Like if you have heard, I, Moses was talking to people here who had heard the story of the Exodus probably a thousand times. And they're unmoved by it. They're just shrug, shrugging their shoulders at it. And I would guess in this room, there are many of you who you have heard about the cross a thousand times times may be an understatement like you you've heard this story you've been shown the picture again and again and again and you acknowledge i just haven't cared like i'm not moved by it doesn't affect me i don't see it i i don't see the forgiveness that's offered i don't see the call to run away from sin I, i've just lived my life continuing to indulge in sin you could be tempted, and what Satan would want to do with a text like this today is you could be tempted to think, that's just how I am. Like Mark's son is colorblind, I'm spiritually blind. God's just not going to change me. I'm condemned. I'm unmoved. You just think, I'll never change. God made me this way. I want you, if that is you, to look at the last verse of today's text. 
verse 29. Moses said, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Sometimes we agonize so much when we start thinking about the, the meta questions of God made me this way. Can I really change? Can I really uh, be different? Like, or am I just fatally, uh, like fatalistically set in this path? And we can just become passive. We can think my response doesn't matter at all. Those questions about whether I'm ever going to be given the ability to see and whether God's chosen me and whether I'm just predestined to this or that, in some ways, those are the secret things that belong to the Lord. When people are born, when you're born, nobody's born like with us knowing, yep, they're going to believe, that person's not going to believe. It is unknown to us who that is and what category you are in, uh, whether that you will be given this sight or you will not be given this sight. In some ways, that is unknown to us. But not everything is unknown, right? He says the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us, that we may do them. And I cannot tell you whether you are one of God's chosen, whether you are one of the people God will give sight to, but I can tell you what he has revealed to all of us of what we are supposed to do. That I can tell you, and I can call you to do it today. The very simple thing that he has revealed to us. Look at the cross. Look at the saving work that God has done for us at the cross. The Son of God took our sin upon himself. And he suffered the judgment of God in our place. And what he calls us to do, what he has revealed for us to do, is very simply, he says, to repent of our sins and trust in that Son of God. To turn from our sins, like to forsake them, apologize for them, ask for the Lord's forgiveness, and set our hopes squarely on His Son, who was crucified for us and raised for us. That is a command from God to all of us. Whether you can see presently or not, whether you have ever seen the cross that way or not, today I have been praying that some of you would finally see the cross that way. And that you would actually repent of your sins and see reason to run away from those sins. But also find at that same cross that you have forgiveness for the sins you've already committed. For the sins that you will commit again. I've been praying that God would give you sight. And don't agonize about, do I really have sight or not? Agonize of whether you do what God tells you to do. That you repent of your sins and you trust in his son. He is calling you to do that today. And I'm calling you to do that today. To repent and believe his son and for those of us who've already done that may every single one of us in this room see God's saving word as a prod to obedience never as an excuse for disobedience amen I invite you to stand I'm going to pray for us we're going to sing the closing song and we'll be dismissed but let me pray for us father in heaven we come to you um, either as those who are blind or those who have been blind. God, we are utterly dependent upon you to give us sight. Thank you for many of us in the room that you have done that for us, maybe even long ago, that you helped us to see there at the cross your mercy and to see there at the cross a call to forsake our sin 
God, for those who you may be doing that work in even today, you may be changing them internally even today, I pray that they would do what you have revealed, that they would turn from their sin and they would trust in your Son. I pray even as we sing that you may be honored, that, that you would move in our hearts, and that you would be honored by what we sing. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.